So I'd like you to open your Bible to Romans chapter 8 today. Romans 8. And we're going to read a portion of that chapter in just a minute. But as you're finding it, I want you to think about something with me. Consider with me the concept of life-changing events. Some things change your life forever. Maybe you can think of some things in your own life that have changed it forever. We could talk about all kinds of things from small to big. You know, we could talk about getting your first job. We could talk about graduating school at any level, high school, college, graduate work, whatever. We could talk about going out on your own, getting your own place, learning to provide for yourself. We could talk about getting married. We could talk about having children. We could talk about being given grandchildren. Those are life-changing events, aren't they? Your life does not go back to the way it was before those things. And all those things are happy things. There are, of course, other types of life-altering events. There are tragedies that change our lives forever as well. In this, in this broken world, our loved ones die, parents Spouses, friends, even children. Those things alter your life at its very core. Those are powerful events. They change how you think. They change how you see the world. They change your priorities in many ways. Now let's... Take it up a notch for a second. Most of those events that I just mentioned are sort of um, localized to this present age. But are there certain events that happen in the course of history that have such a profound impact upon us that we can say truthfully that they affect eternity? An event so powerful and life-altering that the impact of it extends beyond the horizon of this age and into eternity itself. Are there such events? I submit to you that there are such events, and I want to talk to you about one of them today. The event that we celebrate today on Easter Sunday is one of those events. Something happened that changed things drastically for us. And it didn't just change our present, it changed our future, even changing our eternal future. And I would, of course, assume that we all know what we're celebrating today. We've said it multiple times already in this service, but let me just say it explicitly Kids, kids, are you listening? This day has nothing to do with eggs. It has nothing to do with rabbits. It has nothing to do with candy. 
I like candy. I like eggs. And I guess I'm okay with rabbits. But that's not what this day is about. This event that we're commemorating this day is the resurrection of Jesus Christ out of the grave, which literally happened roughly 2,000 years ago on this same earth that we're on now. This is not a myth. This is not a legend. This is not some kind of spiritual parable or story of some sort that we're intended to take symbolically. No. Jesus, the God-man, literally came back to life after being dead, being put to death on a cross. He got up out of his tomb and walked out in triumph over sin and death. And that event has a massive impact on us. I want to show you from the scripture this morning one of these eternal effects brought about by the resurrection of Jesus. I want to help you see that this event is a source of great rejoicing and hope for any and all who believe in him. Okay? The first thing I'll do, um, let me just present to you a kind of thesis for this sermon, okay? And if that term is too nerdy for you, just think of it as the big point, the the big idea, the main point of everything that I want to share to you today. Here it is. There is a state of glory coming for all Christians that is only made possible and is in fact guaranteed by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Let me read it again. There is a state of glory coming for all Christians that is not only made possible, it is in fact guaranteed by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So just to reword it a little bit, I want to show you that basically for everyone who trusts in Christ alone for salvation, that's anyone who comes to Christ for salvation, for all those who come to him, their condition or state in eternity will be one of glory, beauty, joy, peace, Bliss. We could go on and on with the terms describing this. And all of that is made possible by Jesus' resurrection. And further than that, it doesn't just make it possible, it guarantees it. So today we're going to look at um, mainly at two different passages of Scripture um, and kind of put those together, okay? You know, When we read God's Word, some things aren't fully laid out all in one passage, right? Some concepts, some teachings, some doctrines are known to us by an accumulation of passages when they're considered all together, right? And it's the uh, job of all of us as 
hopefully faithful Bible students and faithful Bible interpreters to consider everything that we read. Our job is to put it all together, to take all of Scripture into account. We're to study the whole counsel of God, right? And to, and to draw the proper conclusions from all of it, not just one passage and pit this one against this one. And, well, this passage doesn't say that, so I'm not going to consider that. No, all of it together is God's Word, and we are to be faithful interpreters to put all those things together. Every teaching or every doctrine of Scripture, if it's rightly interpreted, is going to fit together perfectly with every other doctrine in Scripture. There's a system to it. That's why we have something called systematic theology. Some of the men of the church went through a systematic theology book together over the past two years, and we got to study all sorts of things. What does God say about this topic? We looked at it. And it would be a host of different scriptures dealing with that. What does he say about this over here? What does he say about that over there? What were we doing there? We were putting together multiple scriptures to come to a coherent conclusion about what God has said about a particular thing. And we didn't have to force our system onto scripture. The system is found within scripture. And we're just drawing it out. And the reason there's a system to it is because it comes from the mind of God. And God isn't confused. He's not conflicted about anything. He doesn't say something over here and then contradict it over here. He's not, he's not a liar like us sometimes. And he doesn't make mistakes either. He doesn't overlook something. He doesn't say inconsistent things. And the, the reason I'm saying all that this morning is that this big idea that you see there is really something that you need to put together from multiple places in Scripture to better appreciate it. And so let's try to do that this morning. It's not going to be a massive puzzle of, of tons of Scriptures. It's really two. We almost could stick in one, but I think the second one's going to help clarify and I uh, hope this will be an encouragement and joy for us to see. So if you're, you're there in Romans 8, right? Okay. Let's read uh, starting in verse 18, and we'll work our way down through verses, uh, excuse me, to verse 25. This is the word of the living and true God. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit 
groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. That's the word of the Lord. There's a lot there to unpack, so let's just walk through the passage together. So first, Paul, who is the apostle who wrote this book of Romans under the inspiration of God, he says in verse 18... For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Let's think about that because that is truly stunning. Paul says there is a glory coming. And it's going to be revealed to us. We're going to take part in this glory. And the sense in which he's using the word glory is there is a state of glory coming. A state of glory. Not, as, you know, not a state like the United States of America, but a state in the, in, as in a condition of being. We're going to take part in this coming glory We will see it in each other. The angels will see it. And worship will be given to God because of it. And he says, if you compare the sufferings of this present age with that future state of glory, it's not even worth comparing Put all of your sufferings, all of your sufferings in this present world on one side of the scale. Imagine we have a scale here. Here's all the sufferings added together. And then on the other side, put this future state of glory on the scale. The scale will be so far tipped in the direction of glory that this is not even a worthy comparison to make. So when your suffering gets bad, even when it seems overwhelming, we can remember there's a state of glory coming and it will absolutely dwarf all of this suffering that I'm going through. I love the way, um, I love the way Andrew Peterson puts it in one of his songs. He says... We'll look back on these tears as old tales. So all the suffering and the tears and the pain and the heartache will one day feel like a distant old tale. I can barely even remember it. It seemed life-shattering when I was going through it. I can't even hardly remember it anymore. And that's not because time heals all things, but because... The weight of glory that's coming dwarfs the suffering and it puts it into proper perspective. And that's hard to fathom when you're going through the suffering, I know. But the promise of Scripture remains. 
These sufferings are going to fade into obscurity when we enter into this coming state of glory. I wish I could say it better, but I'll have to rely on the Spirit of God to make that real and tangible to your heart for what's coming for you, Christian. Now, who is it that will get to enjoy this state of glory? It says it's going to be revealed to us. Verse 18 there. Who's the us? Is he talking about every human being? Does every human being get to enter into this coming state of glory? Is that how it works? No, that's not what Paul is saying. Paul is not a universalist. In fact, nowhere does the Bible teach that all people will one day be saved and enter into heavenly glory. Salvation, heaven, this state of glory is reserved only for those who have believed in Jesus as their Lord and their Savior. It's for the ones who've been born again by the Spirit of God. They've been changed internally to finally see their sinful condition and their need for a Savior, and they've come to Christ for forgiveness, and they're pursuing obedience to their Master. And we know that the us is qualified that way when we read, for instance, the opening of the book of Romans. Who is Paul writing to? Romans 1.7, to all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints. So this is for God's saints. And the word saint in the Bible is used for all believers in Christ. It means a holy one, a set-apart one, a person dedicated to God and dedicated to his service. It's just another word for Christian. Really. It's another word for a real Christian, by the way. It's a shame that we even have to qualify that word today. Christian or real Christian. And it's because there's so many that just say they're a Christian. I'm talking about a true Christian. Someone who really believes in Christ and who lives out that faith by obeying Him. That's who gets to enjoy this coming state of glory. And even if we look at um, chapter 18, it's, excuse me, chapter 8 itself, we see that Paul is talking about people that he calls brothers. If you scan up your page just a little bit to verse 12, he uses that term brothers. That's who he's talking to. And he's going to go on in our passage in verse 19 to talk about the sons of God. Who are these sons of God? Other parts of Scripture, like from the Apostle John, tells us who the children of God are. It's the ones who have received him, who have believed on him, and who were born by the very will of God. So... I said all that to say, if you're here today, I'm glad you're here. But if you're here today and you've never actually received Christ in faith or believed in Him as Lord, this glory is not for you. 
It's only for people who've trusted in Christ. The beauty is, you're still alive, and Jesus hasn't returned yet. And so the invitation to you is still open. I don't know how much longer the invitation will be open, but you can come this very day and get in on this. And this future state of glory will be yours because you'll be one of his. You'll be part of God's family and you'll receive all of the benefits of being in that family. And the Christians here at this church are available to talk to you anytime. It'll be their joy to do so and teach you and help you how to know that you can be right with God. So after Paul makes this awesome statement that I wish I could do justice to about this future state of glory that absolutely is going to dwarf all of our sufferings, he begins to relate that to another point about God's overarching story of history, we might say. God is unfolding, if you haven't noticed, a pretty epic storyline here with human history. And he's the author of the story. There's not another author, and God is just reacting to what he sees in the world. God's not unsure of how this thing is going to end. He wrote it. He wrote the story of history. He's determined it from the very beginning how everything was going to go down. Look at Isaiah 46, 9 and 10 there on the screen. For I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me. Declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things not yet done. Saying... My counsel shall stand, and I will accomplish all my purpose. The reason we can rest in God's promises today and know that they're going to come to pass is because God is sovereign over every aspect of this universe. Nothing is outside of His control. Nothing is interrupting His plans. He's accomplishing every detail as He intends to accomplish it. I will accomplish all my purpose, he says. Let's move on to verse 19, though. I have no word for you except that word that I've used already, epic, to describe the, um, the interconnectedness of the universe to what God is doing in redemption. Now, we're not... Um, we're not pantheists where God is in every, that, grass, that blade of grass is God and that thing over there is God. No. We're not New Agers. Uh, we don't have some sort of magical, mythical, pseudo-spirituality going on. We don't believe that the universe is all connected in some sort of karma or mythical type of way, but we do believe that the entire creation is connected in a certain sense. The creation was made perfect at one time by God, right? 
And when human beings sinned, the world changed. It wasn't just the human heart that was affected. The very creation itself was subjected to the effects of sin. For instance, death didn't exist. Corruption and decay didn't exist, but sin brought those into the world. And the earth used to produce bountifully. But after sin, God said, the ground's going to now produce thorns for you, Adam. And no longer is just going to give you food effortlessly. You're going to have to work the ground with the sweat of your brow to get it to produce. So there is a sense that everything, even inanimate nature, is all connected in this epic story of redemption. Look at what Paul says here. Verses 19 and following. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. What a vivid picture. Let that sink in. God says the creation itself is waiting. Waiting for what? Waiting to be set free from its bondage to corruption. Do you think of creation right now in your mind as being in bondage? That's what the Bible says. Again, ever since sin entered the world, the creation has been in bondage to corruption. And it can't escape that bondage. It's like a prisoner who doesn't have the freedom to do what it was originally designed to do. That's what it means when it says it's been subjected to futility in verse 20. It's experiencing, if, if we might say it this way, it's experiencing frustration and emptiness because of the effects foisted upon it by human sin. And it's waiting on one thing. What is it that's going to give creation its freedom finally? Verse 19 says it. It's the revealing of the sons of God. When the sons of God get their freedom and their glory, then the entire creation will experience freedom along with them. That's amazing. It's tied together. Until then, though, it's groaning under great pains. In fact, verse 22, it's groaning like a woman in labor. It's experiencing intense labor pains to this very day. But what is it that comes after labor pains, God willing? A baby. There's joy coming, right? In fact, Jesus uses that analogy in John 16. He uses the same metaphor to refer to the joy that his disciples were going to have when they see him again. 
He says, they're going to have uh, anguish and sorrow, but like a woman in labor, when the baby comes, she no longer remembers the anguish for joy that a human being has been born into the world, he says in John 16, 21. So God wants us to think of this entire creation as groaning in birth pains because of what has happened to it as a result of sin. And it's just longing for the release that's coming when God finally gives his children the glory that he promised them. What a picture. One man painted the image for, it, for us this way. I love this. He said it this way. The whole creation is on tiptoe to see the wonderful sight of the sons of God coming into their own. Again, I wonder if we think of the world this way. We need to let Scripture teach us, don't we? I know we see the beauty of creation. Sometimes we think, that is perfect. Look at that. And we do see just absolutely magnificent things in creation that blow our minds. Many of you have seen parts of the earth that I only wish I could see. You've seen how beautiful it is. But the truth is, this creation isn't right. And it's not able to do what it was originally designed to do. It's groaning. It's longing for freedom from its bondage. All because of sin. And one day, God's going to finally reverse the curse that was placed on creation. And then can you imagine what it's going to be like? What will the remade earth and heaven look like? I can't even imagine that. I can't wait to see it, though. And Paul adds this. Creation isn't the only thing groaning. We are groaning as well. Verse 23. And not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. Wow, that's a pregnant verse, pregnant with meaning. So the creation groans and we groan. Even us who have the Holy Spirit, it says. Believers have received the Holy Spirit. Like Ephesians 1 says, we've received the Holy Spirit as this kind of seal or guarantee for what's coming later. We've been promised salvation and adoption and all these blessings from God, but we've really only received them in part so far. The fullness of those things hasn't come to us yet. It's still future. There is a sense that we've already been saved. There's a sense that we are being saved now. And then there's another sense in the future sense that we are going to be saved. And that's what he's talking about here. Paul's saying that even us who have already received this down payment, this guarantee from God in the form of the Holy Spirit indwelling us, even we're groaning. Why? To see our adoption 
into God's family fully realized. And here's the key phrase for us this morning on Easter. It's at the end of verse 23. What is it that we are eagerly awaiting? Not only the fullness of adoption, but the redemption of our bodies. What is that referring to? When will the redemption of our bodies actually take place? That's going to take place when Jesus returns and we are what? Resurrected. Our bodies are not going to lie in the ground forever to become worm food. They're going to one day be resurrected and glorified and perfected and greatly upgraded, we might say. Our bodies are going to be redeemed. And so, with that said, you could draw a circle around that phrase, the redemption of our bodies, in verse 23, and draw a line all the way back to 18, to the word glory. The redemption of our bodies corresponds to the state of glory that's going to be revealed to us. That is the consummation of this epic story of redemption that God's planned from all eternity. That's the entire point he's making here. Paul's saying, yes, you're suffering now, but you wait. There is something coming. There's a state of glory coming for every Christian that will dwarf all of this suffering into nothingness. And it's going to arrive when God redeems our bodies at the final resurrection and he makes all things new, new heaven, new earth, new glorified, redeemed bodies. That's what creation itself is groaning for and leaning toward and looking for and it's what we as God's people are looking for as well. Do you long for that? That's the hope of the Christian life. If, if we're so caught up here in the here and now that we never look at what's coming, something is off spiritually. The end goal in becoming a Christian isn't to have what we want now, our best life now. Our best life's in eternity. This is the worst part of our existence now. The best is yet to come. And Paul says in verse 24, for in this hope we were saved. In other words, when we were saved, we were given this hope. Hey, here's what's coming now for you. And it's not, we get tripped up when, when the Bible uses the word hope sometimes. This isn't a hope in the sense that it's unsure or up in the air, like we use the word in normal English today. Well, I hope it happens. I'm not real sure if it is, but I hope it does. It's not how the Bible uses this word most of the time. This is a guaranteed hope. This is using it in the sense of, it's a hope in the sense that it's just future. It's going to happen, but it hasn't happened yet, but it's guaranteed. It's coming. That's our hope. He says, now hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? You don't have to hope for something if it's here already. But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. 
It'll be a reality one day. Faith will turn to sight. But until then, we wait for it with hope and patience. Or steadfastness is what that word patience means. Persevering. I just see in this um, how robust God's story of redemption is. Nothing is an afterthought. Nothing. It's all tied together. The creation, God's glory, believer's redemption. It's just one massive story of God's glory as he pours out his kindness to undeserving sinners. And the Christian faith is not a bunch of... It just reiterates this to me. The Christian faith is not a bunch of trite little sayings or rules. There are, of course, commands from the Lord as to how we should live. I'm not minimizing that. We are to be a holy people and obey Him. But the end goal of Christianity is not just a moral life in the here and now. The end goal is eternal bliss with God. It's a state of glory beyond all comparison. And I don't know if you view Christianity that way or not, but it is much bigger, I think, than maybe some of us realize. We're looking for our blessed hope. Titus 2.13 The goal of everything is to be with God. In a world of perfection and glory and beauty and sinlessness, to see Him to be with Him, to be in His world that finally is remade to operate exactly how He designed it to be. And the point of going through this passage with you today is is to show you that this coming state of glory that we so much look forward to is only made possible. And as we said earlier, is in fact guaranteed by the resurrection of Jesus. The very thing we're celebrating today on Easter. How do we know that? How do we know what I said is true? I told you we had to look at multiple scriptures and put a couple things together in order for it to come into focus. I want you to turn with me to one more passage. We won't stay here very long, but my goal is to just show you the connection. It's the passage we read earlier in our scripture reading. Turn to 1 Corinthians 15. First Corinthians chapter 15. Again, this is the resurrection chapter, you might call it. Paul's explaining how big of a deal the resurrection really is. He reiterates, Jesus didn't actually save anyone if he didn't rise again. He was just another guy who died on a Roman cross, if that's the case, if that was the end of him. But since he did rise, all the things that Jesus said and taught were true. He is who he is. He's the King of kings and Lord of lords, and his resurrection proves it. But look with me at verse 20 of this chapter. It says, but in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. And notice this, these words. The first fruits 
of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, that's Adam, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead, that's Jesus. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, there's that word again, then at his coming those who belong to Christ. Paul is basically saying here what I just said, that Jesus' resurrection guarantees our resurrection. That's why he uses the word first fruits. If you're a farmer, the first fruits would be the very first part of your harvest, the first crops that you gather at harvest time. And typically, the quality of the first fruits will tell you the quality of the rest of the crops because the first fruits are the first fruits, right? There's more to come. And so it is with Christ's resurrection. When he rose from the dead, he was the first fruits of a whole host of people who would later follow him in resurrection. Who are they? Verse 23 tells us all those who belong to Christ. And all this is going to take place, take place when? At his coming, it says. So what's the connection between Romans 8 and, and here? It's just what we've said. Because Christ was raised... We are going to be raised. He's the first fruits. We're the rest of the crop, so to speak. And at his second coming, God is going to resurrect us and he's going to redeem our bodies, finalizing our salvation and bringing everything about it to full consummation and giving us the promised state of glory that Romans 8, 18 talked about. We'll finally be free. Creation itself will finally be free. Everything will be working as it originally was designed by God. That is the Christian hope. Because he lives again. We're going to live again in glory. So let me bring up the slide one more time that had the main point on it. Now that we've kind of put two passages together and thought about it just a little bit. You need to spend more time there, but let's read it one more time. You follow as I read it. There is a state of glory coming. Check me out and see if I'm accurate. There is a state of glory coming for all Christians that is only made possible and is in fact guaranteed by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Is that accurate according to what we've read in Scripture today? That is the massive, glorious hope that we have. Death is not the end. It wasn't the end for Jesus, and it's not for us either. We don't come to the end of our Christian life, by the way, and say, this will not be our emphasis if we're thinking rightly. It will not be... Well, I'm really glad I became a Christian. You know, it, it's helped me to uh, become a better person. Um, the Christian faith has really gave me peace in my heart. It's helped me overcome some struggles and problems that I've had. Um, it's helped me treat other people better. It's helped me love others better. 
I think at the end of our life, when we're on our deathbed, we won't be looking back so much as we'll be looking forward. The best part of being a Christian is beyond the veil of death. The Christian life is just leading up to that point. Everything leads up to that. Eternal glory. Perfection, pleasure, bliss, joy, sinlessness. You could go on. No pain, no suffering, no sadness. In the very presence of the one who saved us. So I just I want us to see today that Christianity is not a good hobby. In fact, it was a good quote by Jared Wilson. If the resurrection isn't true, we should all stay home. Religion makes a lame hobby. I would agree with that. If anyone treats Christianity, the the Christian faith, like a hobby with no real grounding in reality or eternity to come, if there's not something really going to happen to us when we die, if there's not a real glory coming, you got a hobby on your hands. And it's a pretty lame one. But since the resurrection did happen, and because Jesus was the first fruits of it, we're one day going to follow him in it. And this epic saga will come to an ending. And it won't be an ending like we know other endings. This ending will never end. The ending will never end. It'll just keep on going in eternity indefinitely. The glory will never end. So the future is incredibly bright for you, Christian. And I said it earlier, as I close, let me just say it again. If you want in on this, this glory to come, you can get in on this. It can be yours. I wish I could describe it better to you. But come while the invitation stands. God is patient and he's giving people time to repent and come to him. But one day, as we said earlier, the invitation is going to be over. And you don't know if that's tonight or tomorrow or in a year or in 10 years. The door will close for you whenever Jesus returns or when you die, whichever one comes first. So today is the day of salvation, is what I'm saying. Come while the door is open. And again, come talk to me or any Christian here. We'll show you how you can be right with God. It's by the grace of God, by the way. No hoops to jump through. You will have a new heart where you do obey God. But you won't be saved because of your obedience. You'll be obeying because of your being saved. So step into this hope today. It's what I'm saying to you. And lastly, if you're a believer here, my fellow brothers and sisters in Christ, you have an unshakable joy in knowing this. That because of what Jesus has done in his death and resurrection, there is going to be revealed to you 
and in you a state of glory beyond all comparison. Let that hope keep you going. Let it keep your eyes pointed upward. Let it drive you to worship. Let it compel you to obedience. Let it motivate you to share the gospel. So does that sound like a, does the resurrection, after all that was said, does it sound like a life-altering event? It is. It is. The hope of glory brought to you by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Let's stand. Glory is coming. Let's pray. Father, we rest today in your promises. We take comfort in knowing that, Lord, you're working out your sovereign plan, bringing everything to fruition just as you desire. And because Jesus has risen, this is part of your plan, because he's risen, we too shall rise. And your word promises us that there is an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison that is coming for us. Lord, who are we that you should give us anything besides punishment for our sin? And yet, Lord, you've chosen to set your love upon us. You've sent your son to pay the price for our sin. You sent your spirit to convict us and draw us and make us new. And if we've done that, we can say we are heaven bound. We're glory bound. Because Jesus lives, we can not only face tomorrow, but we can face eternity with joy and anticipation. Lord, we thank you for these promises. Help them not to reside in our minds only, but help them to affect our heart, our affections, our emotions, our entire outlook on life. And we pray these things, Lord, in the name of our risen Savior, the first fruit and firstborn from the dead, Jesus Christ. Amen.